Our gospel lesson this morning comes from John chapter 3, verses 25 through 34. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Whoever receives him has life. We're continuing in the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. If you have a Bible with you, either a paper Bible or a Bible on your phone, I encourage you to pull it out and follow along. So far in Ephesians 1, God has been, I'm sorry, Paul has been praising God to the Ephesians. He's been praising them, praising him for, for God's work of salvation. The previous 14 verses, that's all he's been doing. It starts out with reminding the the, the people of this Ephesian church, reminding them that they are redeemed, that they were bought with a price. Then last week, Andrew White talked about the rich inheritance that is ours through Jesus Christ, that we've already received the down payment of this in our salvation and in being brought into the church. And that the full inheritance that we will receive one day is more than we could possibly imagine. So now Paul shifts from praising God for salvation to praying for the Ephesians. That they would know what the full weight and measure of that salvation is. You know, it's it's one of the easiest little Christian phrases to say to someone when they tell you about something that's going wrong in your life. You say to them, well, I'll, I'll be praying for you. Maybe it'll make the person feels good, and and it costs you nothing to say it except the breath that it took to get those words out. And it's not like anyone can ever prove that you didn't pray for them, so it's kind of win-win. You get to sound caring, and yet don't actually have to physically do anything. 
And sometimes as a pastor, as a pastor, I've found myself saying, if I'm in a, in, in a counseling situation or dealing with someone in a crisis situation, I'll say to them, what can I do for you? I mean, besides pray, of course, I'm, I'm going to do that. But what physical, tangible thing can I do for you? As if I'm saying, you know, something that might actually benefit you instead of just me flapping my lips to God. But that kind of attitude really shows the poor belief that we have in the power of prayer, both as a way of forming us as Christians and as a way of actually participating in God's mission in the world. And so here we have the Apostle Paul, the one who started this church in Ephesus and then left to go start a dozen other churches, who's rotting in prison. This, this, the letter to the Ephesians was almost definitely written from prison. So he's in prison, he has a limited scroll on which to write, and he takes the time to say, I never stop praying for you. Paul was praying for this little church plant of his daily. And what was he praying for them? He was praying that they would grow in wisdom and the knowledge of God's power. And he, would, he was praying that they would grow in the knowledge and wisdom of God's power and how that power plays out in their lives and in the world. Let me pray for us as we open God's word together. God, we ask that we would see Jesus today. We ask that we would see more of him today. We ask that we would be filled with him as we encounter him. We ask that we could rest in the knowledge that what you say is true, that what he has done is finished, and that what he will do is more than we could possibly imagine. Amen. So Paul says that he's praying for the church to grow in the knowledge and wisdom of God's power. There's a big, big theme of power throughout the book of Ephesians. Paul is saying that God is the driving force behind everything and that Christ himself is the main actor in human history. Everything else that we're going to be looking at for the rest of this book flows out of that idea. The idea that a sovereign God is exercising his power in the world. And that nothing else, because God created everything, that nothing else in the created universe can overcome the power of God. So there's a lot of talk about power in Ephesians. Maybe, maybe it's because of how much power the temple, at Ar- the temple of Artemis had over the city of Ephesus, where this church started. If you were here a few weeks ago, we looked at Acts 19 as we began Ephesians together. When the gospel message of the reality of King Jesus comes to the church at Ephesus. And it was so upsetting to the power structures of that time that when Paul spoke about the truth of of Jesus, it literally caused a riot to break out in the city because all all the merchants of the little Artemis statues were so worried that they were losing their business. That's the kind of hold, the kind of power that the Artemis temple had over the city. So it's understandable that even as the church in Ephesus has grown, and it was probably still living under the shadow of the power, the economic power, the political power, the cultural power of that Artemis temple. 
But what Paul wants people to know is, yes, those are all specific kinds of power, cultural power, political power, economic power. But none of those things, not a single one of those, translates into the actual real cosmic power that God has. Because all of those things, as each and every one of us do, all things belong to God. And so Paul is praying that as the church in Ephesus grows in maturity and that as it grows in breadth and spreads, that they would know that the underlying reality of every single thing that they do is that God is all-powerful and God is in control. So he starts off in verse 14 by saying, or verse 15 by saying, for this reason. Well, what reason? Okay, so we need to go back immediately. Uh, Andrew mentioned this last week, but basically the entire first chapter of Ephesians is one long sentence. And so it's the, the punctuation that we've inserted in there is a little bit arbitrary. And so everything is a clause based off the thing before it. So he starts off for this reason. What reason? Well, we see earlier, he says that when you heard the word of truth and believed it, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit and you were insured, you were assured of your inheritance as children of God. So Paul is saying because of that, for that reason, the fact that you have heard and believed and been sealed with the king's insignia, he says, I never stop giving thanks for you. Asking God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation of the knowledge of him. Wisdom is having a good idea of what to do in a specific circumstance. We see wisdom books in the Old Testament and the New Testament, Proverbs, James. These are good, godly advice for living, for people who know God. But then he says that he wants them to grow in knowledge. And that's an interesting word to consider. Like, does God want me to be the best informed person that I can be? Like, does he want me to have a, a wide breadth of knowledge about the things of the world? Maybe. But what Paul is saying here is not the kind of knowledge that leads to being well informed. Paul is praying here for these Ephesians to have the kind of knowledge that leads to true wisdom, how to be discerning, how to see what's important and what isn't important. And that knowledge is not just about being widely informed. That knowledge is a knowledge of Jesus. It's a big difference. And I admit this is a trap I'm capable of falling into, that there's a big difference between being knowledgeable about Jesus and knowing Jesus. And Paul here is definitely talking about the second one, that as we grow in our knowledge of him, we will be, we will be more fully the people that he wants us to be. Paul is praying earnestly that these people would know Jesus. But the interesting thing is, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians in the, in the Ephesian church. So they've already heard the good news. They've already repented and believed. They already know who Jesus is. And yet still, he's asking God to show them, to reveal more of Jesus to them. Friends, it's important to remember that the idea of knowing Jesus is not just for non-believers. It's not just the, the ticket that gets you into the door of the church. 
The Christian life is entirely about gaining a fuller and fuller knowledge of Jesus, of knowing him more and more, a knowledge of his character, his attributes, and his actions. In verse 18, Paul says that he wants them to have the eyes of their hearts opened to the hope that Christ has called them into. Nice phrase, the eyes of their hearts. The heart at that time, different from how we think of it today, the the heart at that time really had nothing to do with emotions. In the the conception of the human body and the, the human life at that time, the brain was the center of intellectual activity. The stomach was actually the center of emotions. And the heart was the center of the will. So it wasn't, it wasn't the core of how you feel. It was the core of what drives you and what compels you. So when Paul was saying that he wants people's hearts to be open to Jesus, it wasn't that he wanted them to feel a certain way. It's that he wants their motivations, the core of what drives them, to be so informed by the reality that God is building his church and he has called them to be a part of it. He wants them to be so informed by that that it can't help but transform their lives because it transforms every action that they turn to. He wants them to know that he has called them specifically to be part of his new creation people. And that the one who has called them, the God who has called them, is powerful and in control. This is key. Verse 19, we see that God has immeasurable power toward those who believe toward those who believe in him power towards us does that mean that like god has power on our behalf in the things that he does for us or does he send that power to us for us to then go do stuff and it's actually both the power that god exhibits is for us And the power that God exhibits shows through us. It's both. God the Father raised God the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit. He literally raised him from the dead. He he unwound the finality of death, bringing a resurrection kingdom into the world. And he did that for us. We didn't have any part to play in that. That was something he did for us. And now he works through us, making us a part of that same story that he is telling through the world as he spreads this resurrection kingdom into his creation. N.T. Wright put it this way. He said, God's power, talking about this exact passage in Ephesians, God's power, the same power that raised and then enthroned Jesus, is available to the ordinary Christian for everyday use. We don't realize that most of the time, And oftentimes, we actually doubt it, showing that we need this prayer every bit as much as the Ephesians did. When Paul prays that they would grow in the wisdom and knowledge of the power of God. Jesus was resurrected and Jesus was enthroned. Part of the Easter celebration is celebrating the ascension of Jesus, and it comes up this next week. After he was physically resurrected from the dead, Jesus was physically ascended into the heavenly throne room where he was seated at the right hand of God and from where he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so we can, 
we can look at things like, like verse 22 here in Ephesians 1, which so closely echoes, echoes Psalm 8 that we just said together. That when God seated Jesus in the heavenly throne room, he put all things under his feet. Psalm 8 verse 6 says, you, is, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put everything under his feet. And then Paul goes on to make it super clear to this church at Ephesus and to our church here what he is talking about. Jesus has all things under his feet and God has installed him as the head of his church, which is his body, Jesus' body. And so it's no wonder that Jesus is the head of his body. And Jesus is the head of his church, and the church itself is the fullness of the one who dwells all in all. So, on earth today, at this moment, the church is the fullest expression of the one man, Jesus, who fills every possible thing in every possible way. That's what the idea of all in all is. He has been given dominion over all creation. He is physically present in the heavenly throne room of God right now. And he is spiritually present everywhere, in everything, at all times, to the fullest possible extent. So what does this mean? The idea that Christ fills all in all. It sounds like good poetry, but a way that I like to think of it is is in a quote from Abraham Kuyper. You might have heard me say this before. Kuyper was one of the best people of the last 200 years writing about how Christians should live in a secular world. And when talking about the, the reign of King Jesus, Kuyper said, there is not one square inch on the whole domain of human existence over which Jesus, who is sovereign over everything, cannot point to and yell, that's mine. That's the kind of power that Paul is saying he prays that the church at Ephesus will realize is already theirs. They already have it. It's what N.T. Wright was talking about when he said that God, the, the same power that God used to raise and enthrone Jesus, that power is available to the ordinary Christian for daily use. Friends, may that be our prayer this week. As we move toward the end of Easter, and we celebrate Jesus' ascension this week. As we prepare the following week to celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church at Pentecost. May we, we, may we be aware daily that the power that God used to raise Christ from the dead and ascend him into the heavenly throne room is available for us every day. You and me, ordinary Christians. The power of God working for you and the power of God working through you. And so whether you live in a time when the church had all the power in the world and things felt nice and safe, the power of God working for you and the power of God working through you is sufficient. Or whether you live in a time when the church has literally no visible power and things feel unsure and uncertain and perhaps even frightening, the power of God working for you and the power of God working through you is greater than any external power that you can possibly imagine. How can this be? Because 
whether it's the first scenario where the church has everything that it could possibly need or the second scenario in which the church is reviled. In either scenario, our response is to be the exact same thing. We, we give of ourselves for others because we are so sure of where the true power and authority lies. When I told Ralphie what our, our themes for this week were going to be, we're still in Easter, so we still talk about resurrection. We're coming up on ascension, so we talk about the reign of King Jesus. And we're in this passage in Ephesians when we talk about the power that God has. Ralphie chose some great songs like, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Regardless of the circumstances, that bulwark cannot fail. And so regardless of the circumstances, our response to God and to, and to the world around us is the same. We give of ourselves for others because we are so sure of where the true power lies. We have to live as citizens that are the subjects of a king that has unlimited power over his creation for us and through us. And we have to tell others about this king who is already in control and how they get to be a part of this one body, the fullest expression of King Jesus on this earth. The kind of power that the church has available to it is an awesome responsibility. And it's only with the kind of humility that Jesus showed in his life can that power be wielded correctly. God's power comes through our weakness, exactly as it did with Jesus on the cross, exactly as it did when John the Baptist was talking about Jesus in our gospel passage. We must decrease and he must increase. And so how do we wield that power? How do we, how do we use that power that Paul is praying that Christians will understand? How do we live that out? I can tell you it's not by pursuing power for ourselves. But what about when we're exhausted? When, we're just, when we feel defeated? When we are just utterly out of ideas? Well, again, we don't gain that power by trying to pursue it for ourselves. I was having lunch with someone this week. We were talking about what the church is going to look like in this country if and when we lose all of our cultural and political power. And really, the church is going to look a lot like the church in the city of Ephesus did. Just this morning, uh, the writer David French wrote an article about the, the death of American Christendom. And in it, he quoted the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who said that for Christianity to be true, it probably can't have much worldly power. Because true Christianity, truly following Christ, is to be an imitator of Christ. And the imitation of Christ, Kierkegaard said, the actual imitation of Christ is the point from which humanity pulls back. We have to know this. We have to know that the world is going to shrink away from the true imitation of Christ. So how do we live out the power that's within us? We must decrease, so he must increase. The power that we have is so great and so immeasurable and so unshakable that the only way that we, as human beings, this side of Christ's return, 
the only way that we can use that is in our weakness, is in sacrificing ourselves, is in giving of ourselves for one another and for the world. We must decrease so that he might increase. And as we go through the rest of Ephesians, it's important to remember something. A lot of people see the rest of Ephesians from about here on as kind of a random collection of like little bits of wisdom literature and some household codes and some ideas on how to pursue godly living. Just kind of a mishmash that all got shoved together. But in all of it, in all of it, Paul is giving instruction. I think very careful and ordered instruction for how we should live our lives in light of the truth that he's telling us right here. That the God who raised Jesus from the dead and ascended him into heaven, that God has built his church and empowered his church and is sending his church. Christ is resurrected. Christ is ascended. Christ controls everything. And as we grow deeper in the knowledge, in the wisdom and knowledge of that power, as Paul prays for us, we grow further in the unity and the holiness that Christ calls us to. Which is to say, we grow more fully into the likeness of Jesus. Because we are the body of Christ. And the more we realize what he has done for us and what he is doing through us, the more we become like the body that he is the head of. And so I would encourage you this week to reread Ephesians 15, Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, the prayer that Paul prays for that church. May it all be our prayer for this church and for every church this week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.